0: Pilot to Pilot is brought to you by the Finner Points. These guys are constantly adding content to the Ground School app. Check it out at learnthefinnerpoints.com.
1: My name is Jimmy Ferreira. I'm a uh, Grumman S2 pilot for uh, Cal Fire slash I'm an instructor on the S2, and
2: I'm also a C-130 pilot as well. My name is Jeff Reynolds, and I'm an air taker pilot to fly the uh, Grumman S2 team
0: av nation what is going on and welcome back to the pilot the pilot podcast my name is justin seams and i am your host today's intro is gonna be super short i am on the road just got in from cabo flew two legs landed in denver took a rental car to aspen i'm watching a deer walk across the the view right now i can't even make this up there's like seven of them It's crazy. But anyways, today's episode is equally as crazy and even more awesome. It is with CAL FIRE, uh, with everything that's going on uh, last year over history and just fighting these crazy fires in California. Uh, CAL FIRE is doing such a great job with that. Uh, Go follow their Instagram. It will be in the description below. Go follow what they do. It is incredible. I'm so thankful for them coming on to share their story and just talk about their great part of aviation and their public service. And it's just really, really cool to see. And it's a great opportunity If you have ever wanted to be a Cal Fire pilot, go hit them up, uh, do whatever you can to get into this industry because it is, uh, from the sounds of it, a very rewarding industry. But Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please leave us a review. Add this to your playlist, podcast playlist. That's another thing I just found out that Spotify cares about. So add this podcast to a playlist if you don't already. Even if you don't have a podcast playlist, just add it to one anyways, and that helps the rankings as well. But Aviation, I hope you guys are having a great day. And without any further ado, Here's CAL FIRE. Jimmy and Jeff, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'm really excited to have you guys on. And we're talking a little bit forward. This has been, this has been a process getting this, uh, in this approved in the right channels and uh, getting this going. But uh, nonetheless, I'm excited to have this conversation and talk about a sector of aviation that uh, is not, not overlooked, I want to say, but maybe not so many people really understand how to get involved, how what you all do, what the whole thing means. So I'm, I'm really excited to to shed some light on this part of the aviation world and uh, and talk to you guys today. Absolutely, you bet. So let's get started with uh, for both of you. Neither one of you can just jump in whenever you want to ask, but like, why get into this side of the industry? There are so many ways. You can make a career in aviation. There's so many things that you can do and make money, make good money. Uh, I, I don't know what the money looks like, what you're doing now, but I'm guessing it's more of a, a profound kind of joy and just absolute love of your job and love to see uh, that you're helping people, helping communities. But how did you get involved in this? What, was this an early on, like you wanted to always do this or was it kind of, you You were in the industry and kind of lost out, lost the love of flying passengers and wanted
3: to find something cooler? Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, For me personally, it was, uh, I got into aviation,
2: maybe a little bit later than a lot of people that I know, uh, got in at 24, and uh, I wanted to do this. I mean, I expressed that day one on my first lesson, and so um, I didn't know that I was wanting to go fly for CAL FIRE necessarily. I just knew I wanted to be an air tanker pilot. So. I kind of targeted my hours and my profession, you know, for 10 years aiming for this. And, you know, I got started flying in 2008 and the industry wasn't, uh, wasn't looking too good back then. Most of the instructors were furloughed airline guys. And it, uh, it just kind of reiterated the fact that uh, I don't want to be on the airline side, um, or even the corporate side, but I wanted to just target it so I could get into the aerial firefighting side of things. And, for me, my first exposure to the aerial firefighting thing, I lived uh, or want to live back in. But uh, I'm from Rancho Cucamonga originally, which is at the base of uh, pretty much Big Bear and Cucamonga Peak in Southern California. And it seemed every 10 to 15 years, there'd be a raging wildfire that just run right past my house and I get to sit there and watch the air show. So that was my first exposure from a young age. And that kind of perked my interest from a young age and then just followed the, uh, follow the dream and got started at 24 and finally made it uh
3: made it into fire in 2017 so that's a quick synopsis there so after you james well like i totally backed into this industry um i got my private
1: when i was 22 years old out at the nut tree airport in vacaville california and My dad was a mechanic for United Airlines and a private pilot, so he got me into aviation at a young age, going to air shows and whatnot. And um, I was working for a company called Reading Arrow, flying a UPS cargo and Cessna 402s and 404s. And and I started there January of 2001, and you know, getting up at 4:30 every morning, six days a week, building multi-engine time. And and then we all knew what happened in September 11th of that year, is uh, you know. tragedy stuck, struck the nation and uh, the aviation industry just came to a halt. And I wasn't one of these guys that wanted to be an airline pilot. I just loved flying. I loved the passion of flying. But, you know, I mean, having that type of job just really didn't interest me. And and as luck turned out, uh, the company, I was, Reading Arrow that I was working for, they had an air attack division where they were flying uh, ATGS, Air Tactical Group Supervisors for the Forest Service and the BLM. And they had two airplanes, two pilots. One of their pilots had had a heart attack just before the season started. And they sent a memo out and asked if anybody had any Skymaster time. And I did. And they asked me how much. And I was like, well, I have to go home and check my old logbook. And I came back I had 22 and a half hours. And they're like, that's perfect. You need 25 for the insurance. So uh, you're it. I'm like, um, okay. And so anything not to have to wake up at 430 in the morning. So... I ended up getting uh, my uh, 135 check ride in the SkyMaster and a 340, and I headed off to Grand Junction, Colorado, in the summer of 2002, and spent 45 days there, and just a great group of people, and uh, and that's kind of how I got into it. And then I finished the contract out there. There was a couple. Uh, Aviation accidents with air tankers and a co-pilot for Neptune had quit. And I start to get to know those people. And I finished my contract flying air attack and went right into a co-pilot on P2V Neptune that same year. And I kind of just haven't looked back. I just it's one of the best kept secrets of aviation, but it's not on purpose. It's just a fantastic job. And the main thing is just a great group of people.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the, the understanding that I get uh, from the outside looking in. And I have two friends now. One, her name is Emily, and she worked for um, Horizon, used to fly the 175, and she quit that job. Now she's flying Aero Commanders. And then my other buddy, Hunter, out in Arizona, he is flying Aero Commanders too. And I don't know if it's kind of like the process of going up as you, you start in a smaller plane, or whether it's your seats pilot, or you go in the Aero Commander, and then you work your way up, or if uh, that's just kind of how you get your foot in the door.
1: Yeah, there's just a million ways to skin a cat. I mean, there's there's so many. Everybody that works for um, Dine Corps on the CAL FIRE program, they all have their story. Everybody has a different way to get into this business. And it's, uh, yeah, the, the only thing that's important is that they're here now.
0: You know, the thing that I find interesting about aviation is from the outside looking in, it it, it seems like it's a very intimidating industry and very hard to get into. Like. You, you think you have to be way smarter than you actually have to be, or you just think there's so many roadblocks that might pop up and keep you from doing it. And being inside the aviation community and looking at certain jobs, can, like firefighting, um, it kind of seems the same way when you're in the community. Like, it seems like it's very difficult to get into it. Would you say it is a difficult side of the industry to get into, or is it just as easy as uh, reaching out to the right people and uh, just kind of like... Um, if you want to be a pilot, you just call an FBO or you just call that company and they're usually pretty easy, not easy, but they can uh, lead you down the path to joining those ranks.
2: Well, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, yeah. Uh, my personal story was I, I, uh, kind of like what you said about your friend Hunter, right? Very much the same thing. I, I started in fire flying an arrow commander, um, but before that I was flying a King air three hundred and fifty for a charter company called West coast charters out of John Wayne Orange County. And, uh, I got into that because a friend of mine, um, his name is Matt. He pulled me out of towing banners. I was flying a super cub. And he's like, dude, you, if you want to do this, you know, dream job of yours, you, (laughs) I don't know many aerial firefighting jobs that fly super cubs. So you may want to come and build some (laughs) twin time at least. So, um, he got me a job there, flying a King Air three hundred and fifty. Did that for two years, and that's you know kind of the stepping stone. But um, I knew I wanted to do, and I had been in contact with some Forest Service people, and they said, you know, look at Airtax, look at Airtax. You need to find an Airtax company, and uh, you know, target them. Well, in two thousand and sixteen, uh, they had a fire in uh, near Monterey called the Sobranos Fire, and I was dropping off some people uh, to go. They had a tea time at uh, Pebble Beach there in Monterey, and I. Looked across the ramp, and there was a King Air, or there was a my King Air, and right next to it was an aero Commander. And uh, this lady was wiping off soot and ash from the windshield of the aero Commander. I'm like, well, that's that's a clue. So I walked over there and <laughs> talked to her, and uh, you know, said I, I think you fly fire. Do you not? She's like, yeah, fly air attacking. And this is, you know, this is the airplane we use. You know, and uh, you know, yeah, it's a fun job. I'm like, well, this is exactly what I want to do and how I want to get into it. How do I get into it? And she said, well, you need multi-time. And, you know, she kind of laid it out for me. I said, well, I, I fly this airplane that's sitting right next to you. Would that qualify me to come over and work for you guys? And she said, uh, here's my card. Give me a call next year. And I did, they hired one person and that was me. So that's, you know, and that was 2017 and I, um, got into fire. That's, I mean, how it worked. I know for other people, it takes a little more, uh, time and, you know, making phone calls and, um, hitting the pavement and uh you know and this company was really really small and i just got lucky It was an awesome small little company based out of santa maria they had two aero commanders and i flew one of them um but uh you know there are much bigger um companies that fly air attack on contract for the u.s forest service and um their names i mean it's pretty easy to find them on the internet just with the with the search and they're always looking for pilots so I don't think it's difficult. It definitely takes a special interest in the industry because uh, it's it's not just flying circles around fires when you're doing the air tech. And you got to be engaged. Uh, you're not going to be sitting there on autopilot. You got to you know you're there to support the people on the ground. So it definitely takes uh, just the love of being on a team and knowing how the team works. And uh, so
3: yeah, kind of a short blurb of how I got into it. Yeah. What Jeff said was, uh, uh, it was spot on,
1: you know, everybody sees the glory of us, you know, saving homes and lives, but there's a lot of, you know, behind the scenes stuff. I'm, when I was working for Neptune, uh, we were working, uh, I think it was 2003 bunch of fires down in SoCal during the Santa Ana winds. And the P2 was completely filthy. We finally had a break in the action. So I got up my, dirty plane washing clothes. And I was out there washing the Neptune by myself. And and this guy came up on a motorcycle and he was a corporate jet pilot. And he'd been watching the news and he's like, man, this is what I want to do. Can you can you get me one of those pilots that I could talk to? And I'm like, yeah, I'm one of these pilots. And he just laughed at me. He's like, yeah, right. You're out here washing the airplane. Can I talk to a pilot? I'm like, no, this is, this is what we do. And to this day, he still doesn't believe I'm a pilot of that airplane. so it it takes it's just a different type of uh it's more of a blue collar job and uh you know it's it's just not what everybody expects getting into it but it it by far is the most rewarding job i've ever had that's why i'm still here
0: Talk a little bit about the misconceptions of your job. Like, obviously, uh, people might not understand the the full blue collarness around it, and it's more than just flying, and it's not just kind of like flying to and from. You are constantly working, thinking, hand-flying, sometimes close to the ground, uh, close to fires and smoke. Kind of like, talk a little bit about some misconceptions that you think the public has about your job
3: versus what you actually do. After you, Jimmy. Age before beauty. Oh, that's rough. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um yeah it's just it's uh there's long like especially right now i'm i i'm a relief pilot so i work 10 days on and i have five days off which is a fantastic schedule to the last 19 years where we i've worked six on and one
0: off and six on and North one e- off dang yeah <laughs> That's and, rough. I mean,
1: when it was a four to six month um fire season it was still very challenging and difficult for the family life but it was doable. And now with, you know, I mean, especially Northern California is where I'm based right now, it's uh, it's just nonstop. You know, a season can easily go six to 10 months. I mean, pretty much every single year. And now having those five days off makes it much better. And, and uh, they're just long days. You have 14-hour duty days, 10 hours rest, and fly, flying uh, the S-2 we're both uh, we fly single pilots so we're limited to 7 hours when we when the C130 comes online and we're flying that we can work 8 hours because it's a multi crewed airplane and they are just uh, long days you know every day right now the you know pretty much most of northern california the visibility is 3 miles at best so it's just challenging conditions you know you, you get home from uh, you know flying 7 hours and I mean, I did, I worked at Dixie Fire, which you guys have probably heard on the news have been going for over a month. I was on it the second day and I did 17 loads on it. And, and, uh, yeah, so 17 takeoffs, 17, uh, drops and 17 landings. And you get back and you go to the hotel room, take a shower and you're just wiped out. And you're up again at, you know, 6:30 to get to the tanker base for early call. And, and it just, it could be repetitive. And so you just have to really cherish the quiet times. And I know, talk to Jeff a little bit, you know, there's not a whole lot of fuel right now in um, the central part of California and Hollister. And, and, you know, it gets kind of bored at times and it's always, I pre, you know, you appreciate
3: the the slow times because when it gets busy, it gets really busy and it's hard to catch your breath. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and being being based in Hollister this year, um Hollister
2: had their biggest year ever last year. They did over a million gallons of retardant. Um, and that's just with S2s, because uh, they don't bring any uh any large air tankers down there. So it was a very busy year compared to this year, which is one of the slower years. Um, and partly because our response area, I mean, got hammered last year. But uh, you know, not a lot of rain, not a lot of uh grass crop and so therefore not a whole lot of uh, uh initial attacks for us in the hollister area so we've been slower which is contrasted to last year which was just a a huge year which for me was was kind of good to see last year was my first year as an air tanker pilot by myself the year prior i was a trainee so um it was kind of like uh, yeah welcome to the show good luck here you go so it was good to have that and then compare it to this year which is a little bit slower uh, for me, you know, in, in our response area, being in Central California and the Central Valley area. So, um, yeah, people don't see the sitting around waiting, you know, kind of just uh, cocked and ready, but, you know, nowhere to go until the uh, the alarm is sounded and you're, you're off into your airplane. So you got to kind of keep yourself occupied. I know a lot of people have the, I have two plans for the day. One is flying, <laughs> waiting to fly. And the other one is I'm going to, you know, read this book or. Learn Spanish or, you know, keep yourself occupied, but something that's relatively easy to, to set aside so you can then get in your airplane. So, I mean, if, uh, if making souffles is your deal, probably not the best <laughs> at a tanker base because you're probably going to have to leave in the center or the middle of making one. So, um, you know, you kind of have to have, you know, two planes when you sh- or two, uh, two plans when you show up in the beginning of the day. But,
3: uh, yeah.
0: And talk about being thrown to the fire last year, your first year going out all by yourself. And it's uh, one of the busier years you probably will have hope. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm sure you guys want to fly. Like you want to go fly. You want to work fires. But at the same point, when you are working fires, other people are experiencing extreme tragedy. So it's like got to be really hard uh, mentally. Just the fact that like your enjoyment of the job is usually in result of other people uh, losing property or even losing life.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of mixed emotions when you get over top of the fire, you know, over the fire and you see what's going on and you see what's being threatened and being able to, uh, you know, have empathy for those people and understanding like, okay, I have the ability right now to do a lot of good. Uh, And so it is, uh, it's a very rewarding job, but it
3: also, you know, it it can weigh on you um, most definitely. Talk a little bit about um, kind of the come up process. So obviously you don't get thrown into an S2 or
0: a C-130. Is it usually you start in either, I, mean, I guess seats pilots would be different, but would you start in an air tractor, move your way up and keep going? Or is the the seat pilot air tractor, I believe the air tractors are on their own side and then you start the air commander and work your way up in that air attack? Uh,
2: everyone has their own, a uh, different track. I'm, I'm not sure. Um. um The CAL FIRE model, typically how it's worked, and uh, Jimmy would uh, knows better because he did a lot more years in the OV-10 than I did, but you get hired as an air attack pilot and you fly the OV-10 until uh, OV-10 slash King Air, depending on where you're at, and then you you wait to bid uh, on seniority, a tanker trainee spot, and in years past, and again, I can let jimmy speak to this you know it was uh you know they're training one or two tanker pilots a year whereas now um it's uh there's a lot more trainees through the pipeline because the pilot pool was a lot more top heavy um and with a lot more retirements and such but uh i'll let jimmy speak on that he's he's been here longer
1: yeah i mean it's uh jeff's spot on you when you get hired here you know when people show up they're The people that are the most successful are the well-rounded pilots, the ones that anytime they have a chance to fly any type of airplane, they just jump on it and go. Um, We've had some guys that come up, like we have uh, XF-18 fighter pilots. We have a couple U-2 pilots. We have people that have flown cargo. We have people that are glider instructors and and airline pilots. The people that... um, you know, I'm an S2 instructor, the people that really sort of breeze through the program are the ones that um, have an open mind and they come with a very well-rounded background. Like they haven't just, you look in their logbook and if they've flown five airplanes their entire career, they're usually going to struggle a little bit. People that have flown, you know, close to a hundred different types of airplanes, multi-engines, tailwheels, gliders, they're the ones that really excel in this type of work, you know, because it's, it's, you have to have a passion for flying to do this job because like I said, it's long days. There's some frustrating days, there's rewarding days, but, um, ultimately, you know, you just have to have a passion for aviation. So once our minimums are 1800 hours total time and 800 hours, uh, PIC multi-engine. And like anything, that's the minimums, you know, you come in with more than that, you'll be uh, more apt to get hired and more successful. And, And a lot of it is the attitude of of your of a pilot, you know, because you're going to be stuck with someone for, you know, up to ten days in a small room waiting for the bell to go off, and and I mean, we even see people that excel um, have like a a team sports background, people that are used to the team environment, not just doing everything by themselves, and they're the ones that excel. So when you get you know you get interviewed, you get hired, you go through a two week training program in the OV ten. Or like, or Jeff said, we have a couple of key that we use for training the, um, the backseat OV-10 guys and gals, the, uh, their air tactical group supervisors. They're basically the control tower in the sky, um, run, you know, basically helping run the show from the, the aerial side of it. But you get checked out in the OV-10. I mean, when I did it, I spent, I think, four years in the OV-10 before a slot opened up to be an, um, an S2 air tanker pilot. And, uh. It's one of those things that nowadays, you know, like Jeff said, we were pretty top-heavy. We had a lot of uh, Vietnam-era pilots that have uh, retired, and so we had to start, you know, like we went from training one person a year, sometimes no one a year, to two, and then I mean, the last several years, we've been no less than um, five to seven people every single year that we're training and to get upgraded in the S two, and it takes it takes about um, you know a good season and a half. Depending on the ability and a lot, you know, you'll spend in the S2, you'll spend about 20 hours getting checked out in the airplane, going out doing water drops, learning the emergency systems and procedures. And then the rest of it is all on the job training. So when you're seeing a fire um, near your house, there's a chance that in the left seat is a uh, air tanker trainee with a very experienced uh, air tanker instructor in the right
3: seat. What, I guess, uh, go
0: through, all right, no, this is a better question. I'll ask this first. Um, How have, obviously, right now, what we've seen, especially last year, the fires are just absolutely crazy. Uh, It seemed like it was the worst year that I can remember. I'm from the East Coast and I live in the Midwest now, so I I obviously don't have too much experience around that. But how have you seen it change over the years since you've been in this? Have the fires been getting worse? Have there been more fires? Or is it just kind of a season, season, every season's different?
3: Um,
1: every season is different. You know, when you watch the news, every I mean, this is my 20th fire season. And every time I watch the news, they'll say this is going to be the worst fire season on record. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And it's either because if you don't have a lot of rain, you have a horrible drought and, you know, it affects everything, but it really affects the, um, the, like the Sierra Nevada mountains, the forest, the trees start dying. Um, there's, a uh, Big beetle kill infestation that has been killing a lot of our forests because they root into the tree in search of water and it ends up killing the trees. And then if we have a ton of rain and then say it cuts off by you know the middle of May and then fire season you know usually kicks off around June, then you have a tall like where Jeff said in Hollister, there's a lot of wind driven grass fires. So you can have four to five foot um, high grass. Once that cures, it's very difficult to stop. So um, in my last 20 years, yeah, if you look at the California, the record-breaking uh, size fires and destructive fires, it's all in the last five years. So it's, you know, I don't know what's what's happening, but it's uh, been getting worse and worse. And, you know, it just starts wearing on you. And, you know, you just go out there do the best job you can. And, and Cal Fire's motto is you stop try and stop a fire within 10 acres. So we're pretty aggressive. As soon as uh, someone makes a 911 call, it goes, you know, immediately goes to the dispatch, goes right to the tanker base, and we launch everything. And there's times we'll take off, and there's uh, there's no fire or it's been self extinguished by, you know, a resident. But we send, um, we'll send an OV10, two S2s, a copter, uh, I think three fire engines, a dozer, and a water tender, and a cr- and they'll send a crew right away to uh, combat the fire. And there's a lot of times there's nothing there, but the thing is, we stopped so many fires within 10 acres and we have a high success rate. But on, you know, some of these fires, like in the in the mountains where you have um, a lot of really uh, weakened timber from the drought, you know, it's very difficult, steep terrain. It's hard to cut line around it. And it's been, uh, been very disappointing to not have the success rate that we've had early on. And a lot of it has to do with the drought that we're in. Yeah.
0: You mentioned the last five years. I actually pulled up uh, before we started. It's uh, on your website. It's the emergency fund, fire suppression expenditures, and just looking at the last five years compared to when this they started in 1979 and 1980, uh, the spending was 11 million nine hundred seventy eight thousand, and from 2020 to 2021, it was 1.288 billion dollars. That is uh that's just crazy numbers to think about, and it it has i mean there's some months or some years were were higher in the past, but nowhere near the the one point two billion dollars that was last year uh so obviously that just goes to show like you were just saying that it's just been getting uh, a little bit more intense every single year and and last year, whether it was an outlier or uh, just uh it's gonna be more of the same for the next couple of years
1: yeah, I mean, mother nature's the predictor on that if we you know hopefully. We'll get some early rain, you know, say uh, November, October, November, but there's a chance we may not see a drop of rain till December. And the rain that we do get, they have a little sparkly lightning in it that doesn't help us out. So it's, uh, it's just been difficult.
0: So talk a little bit about, about, or talk a little bit when that call comes in. What happens? Uh, the whole process from beginning to end, like, do you send out certain planes first to go to go inspect a fire, and then uh, they come back and're like, yeah, bring the big bring the big tanker we need to get this out, or is it more of a condition based thing? So you get a call and you're like, all right, well, conditions are very, very promising or very bad for this to to spark and become a huge fire, uh, or is it just you treat every fire at the beginning like it's the same
3: fire and go try to attack it the same way? I like Jimmy said, this one. Uh... Yeah, sure. We can, uh, yeah, it's uh, every
2: call that comes through. Um, so if we're all, if all the pilots are sitting there, you know, chit-chatting in the morning and, <clears throat> you know, we hear uh, three beeps, uh, code three, it just, it, everyone kind of stops talking and we listen to what the dispatch is. It could be a medical, it could be anything, but uh, you're basically listening to the monitors that are placed all around the base. And when you hear a vegetation fire, your ears really perk up. And then you kind of listen for the location of it. You know, this is all just through the monitors as you're sitting there. I mean, if you're in the bathroom, there, there are speakers in the bathroom. If you're doing laundry, there, if you're weightlifting, whatever, wherever you're at in the base, um, you can hear uh, what's going on in the unit. And uh, once you actually do get a dispatch, uh, you know, vegetation fire, um, in my neck of the woods, you know, uh, Pacheco Pass, which is Highway uh, 156. And you're like, okay, that's definitely going to be us kind of start sauntering out to the airplanes. Um, and then you'll hear over the monitors, um, you know, Hollister Air Attack Base, you know, and what they're requesting. Every fire, um, typically, um, every vegetation fire that we get dispatched to, it's all three airplanes. It's the OV-10, it's the two S2s. And like Jimmy was saying, they'll pull a helicopter, the closest helicopter. And, uh, and then they um, launch a slew of ground resources from dozers, water tenders, hand crews. And we treat every single one of them like it could be the big one. You know, we all launch to it. And Hollister is a great example of, uh, you know, the, the infamous canceled dispatch. You know, we'll, we'll launch everybody. We go to the airplanes, get everything running, radios come on, and then we get the dispatch. And you get the Latin, you get the name of the incident, the uh, Latin long, bearing and distance. You get a bunch of frequencies from air to air frequencies, air to ground frequencies that are going to be used on that fire. And um, once you have all of that, you just let the guy who there's a Cal Fire uh, person sitting there at the radio is giving you the dispatch. We just call rolling, which means that we're all starting to, you know, the process of taking off. We go to the runway and all of us launch. And uh, we treat every single one of them like, like I said, like it could be the big one or like any, you know, we. it's not, uh, oh, let's see, let's send the ov 10 out and, you know, he'll tell us if he needs us um from there if it uh, if we get over the incident and it looks immediately like we're gonna need um more help more than just the helicopter the two s twos the air uh the a t g s the guy in the back seat of the o v ten who is a cal fire captain or battalion chief um he can send out more requests and more orders for additional aircraft be that uh, helicopters uh and or tankers and so the he bases uh what the fire is doing on, you know, or, or the basis is orders off what the fire is doing. You know, if it's, if the two S2s aren't going to cut it, um, if it's, you know, a slope driven, wind driven, uh, fire and it's running up towards houses and it looks like this has potential for, you know, a uh, thousand acres, then it immediately he'll order uh, more resources. Um, and a lot of times the, the next resources are just the closest resource you know you could get uh you can get a large air tanker you can get uh, more s twos it just depends on where the fire is um, but uh I'll let Jimmy add in there. I probably missed some things
1: well, um I remember when I was based at Hollister years ago there was a a local uh, uh guy in the hangar next to us, and he's like, "God, you guys sure you know go up and get canceled a lot and he's like, "You guys must spend a lot of money on it and I thought about it we you know, over the course of the season, especially that base you get a lot of dispatches, they might spend one to two hundred thousand dollars on you know just everybody taking off and everybody coming back and all the engines leaving and coming back. but that same year was uh, what Jeff said he was at Monterey and uh, witnessed uh, the Sobranis fire and and I was uh, based at Hollister. I made the first drop on it and we threw a bunch of equipment at it, but it was in such a bad area we couldn't get ground resources once the wind it it took off and at that time in 2016 that was the most expensive um, wildfire in California history, not as basically as far as um, finances it was over 200 million dollars and I told them I said you know you you can uh, you can go by how much um, success we have you don't know any one of those acres that we stopped within 10 acres could be another one of these Sobranis fires that. Cost two hundred million dollars, and with that kind of money, you can buy an entire new fleet of aircraft for the entire state. so it's uh, you know you, it's, you can't really see how much you know how much money you've saved the state, although I go to bed every night, no one you know like yeah we we made a good job stopping that. The guys on the ground took action quickly and safely. they knocked it out, they cut line around it, they put hose around it. It's a done deal, and it's like, man, if that thing would have gone to top the top of the hill, it would be gone so. I go to bed at night, you know, with a smile on my face, knowing that, you know, the team as a whole, you know, did a good job and kicked some ass.
0: How quick can you tell uh, upon either the phone call or when you first show up to a fire that this fire is going to be a problem? I know there's probably other conditions. Like you said, the slope of the vegetation around it. There's a lot of things that come into play. So I'm guessing there's a point in the season where fires can either spread faster or the conditions are more ripe for a potentially dangerous fire. Is this something you can tell right away when you get there or is every fire different in how it starts and how it finishes?
1: Um, every fire is different, but like you said, um, having an education of the area that you're fighting, you know, certain areas. And, you know, when you get out in the morning, if you're wearing a sweatshirt and it's kind of humid out, you know, fires aren't going to run as well as they normally would. And the up in northern central California, and then it blows down to the south. The changing of the season, especially in October, November, we get a north wind that blows. um, You know, kind of like basically just north of Redding, goes all the way down to Bakersfield and turns a corner and kind of comes out of the east to become Santa Ana winds down in SoCal, and and that's usually when you get the most destructive fires. You have you know forty to seventy knot winds. You have single digit humidities. And days like that, you know, when you know that's predicted, I get to work a little early, make sure my airplane's tip-top shape, because I know if, you know, if somebody drops a cigarette or dro- drags a chain or just does something stupid, we know that, you know, it's going to be a very destructive and potentially deadly fire. And there's also places, uh, you know, being at Hollister, you go to, you know, certain areas, you, you go to fires, you know, when you hear like Oakland Hills and it's a north wind day. You know, I step mm-hmm. up my game. I get moving a little faster because I, yeah, you know, I know the destruction that place had in 1991, where it, it burned up 2,500 homes and killed 25 um, people. You know, in in a matter of a day. So there are certain areas. You know, Paradise, California had um, a tragic fire, the campfire in 2018, yeah. and and that stuff all got wiped out. Now it's full of a bunch of dead grass. So I'm based at Chico on my rotation and. When there's a fire up there, you know, I step it up even faster just because I know that the potential is there to be really destructive and deadly.
0: When you're flying, when, when those potentials, so say the days that you know uh, this could spread, this is bad, uh, all the conditions are right for a really bad one, the winds are high. Uh, that's got to make it harder to actually attack this fire and help suppress it. I'm guessing when the conditions are ripe for a really bad, crazy fire, it might mean the conditions are even more difficult for you as a pilot to to do your job. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. On the, uh, you know, when it, when, you know, mountain flying is very difficult to begin with. And if you put, you know, 50, 60 knot winds on it, you get a lot of turbulence on the backside of um, hills, you get rotors and, and you really have to be on top of your game and you really have to fly the airplane as safely as possible because you're not going to do anyone any good if you don't make it home that night. So um, it it's it just you just have to fall back on the limitations of the airplane and the limitations most importantly is yourself as a pilot in command of that aircraft.
0: How hard is it as a pilot? To, to understand like obviously you know the limitations of an aircraft you you've probably gained garner a lot of experience as you you kind of build your career and you know all right well that's set up to be a disaster and you avoid that but there's also in the back of your mind it's like we really need to get this fire out or we really need to help these people on the ground And you and you might think to yourself this one last line or this one last drop could really help change the fire how hard is it to kind of get out of that, like, I don't want to say matcha mentality or like get their itis, but there's definitely some kind of attitude that comes with this kind of flying, I would imagine. How hard is it to either talk yourself out of that or to, uh, to go back and land and maybe walk away from, from doing something that might be just not reckless or very dangerous, but just might be right on the edge of what the airplane can do?
1: It's uh, one of those things that, you know, as an instructor in the S2, you could teach a monkey how to push the red button and have red stuff come out of the belly. But it really takes a strong pilot to be able to say no. That's the key. I mean, uh, there's there's a a written essay by a guy named Smokey Val. He worked at the Hemet Taker base in the 70s and 80s, and and it was called. If you guys look it up, it's called. It's not that bad. And it just talks about going to fire, sand in winds, and it's bumpy and like, oh, it's not that bad. Then it gets you know the airplane. All his pens and pencils are hitting the roof of the airplane. Um, from the severe turbulence, it's not that bad. Then finally the air tankers get on scene. It's like, oh man, it's, it's pretty rough, but it's not that bad. And then finally it gets so bad that someone pipes off. It's like, you know what? We're done. We're not doing anybody good. Someone's going to get killed here. We're going home. And then everybody pipes in like, yeah, that's great call. We're leaving. And everybody leaves And it. It takes a really strong person to be that, that, um, guy or gal that says, no, you know what? We just can't do it. Someone's going to get hurt. We're sorry. We're going to have to go back and, you know, wait maybe wait a couple hours for the winds to calm down or maybe even not till the next morning. And and it's a difficult decision, but, you know, in your heart what you can and cannot do with that aircraft and the retard to help people on the ground.
0: And I'm guessing when those situations pop up, uh, the fire is at its best or not its best, but it's at its uh, most dangerous and it can probably be frustrating because that's when everyone would think it's, it's the most important time to go attack it. But when it's so dangerous and I guess, what was it up in uh, Canada where it was creating its own weather system and then was it tornadoes like fire tornadoes and stuff? It's probably not the best idea to be going flying around in those.
1: Yeah. Last year I was on a fire just, um, northwest of the reno stead airport where they hold the reno air races every year and it was the first national weather service uh, warning for a fire nato i mean uh, it sounds like a joke or a movie but i was on that fire and i actually have pictures of it obviously we couldn't take action until it subsided but um it was a i mean it looked like a, it was a tornado that was created by the extreme fire behavior of the weather and the dryness and uh, it, it ended up tearing up a couple of outbuildings. So um, yeah, loyalty. have those happened in the past? Yes, but now they have a new technology where they can actually mm-hmm. you know, check the rotation and the weather service can predict it. So That's, that's incredible.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing technology just played a huge role in, uh, in help, helping uh, this whole process. Absolutely. In your line of work, you rely on precision planning, trusted resources, and experience each day. And that's just what RAA brings to financial planning. Having served thousands of pilots for three decades, they understand how important planning for the future is to your career, livelihood, and family. That's why RAA offers free consultations with financial advisors who know pilots and can answer your most pressing questions, provide personalized guidance on the key areas you need to address now, and deliver actionable next steps to help keep your plan on course. Most importantly, you'll have a clear picture of your current financial life and a partner you can trust to help you achieve your financial goals. Meet with an RAA financial advisor specializing in your airline for free consultation today at raa.com backslash pilot to pilot. That's pilot, T-O, pilot. And remember, in life there are passengers and pilots. We, RAA, proudly serve pilots. Now you don't have to fully admit to this. My wife wanted me. She when I told her that I was having this podcast, she was really excited, and she's like, "Can you ask them how scared they are when they go fly?" <laughs> so I mean, I know this difference of being scared and being kind of like heightened intensity. Intensity, but let's talk about like your first big fire, or your first day. Was there any kind of like um, intimidation? I would say, or was it more excitement and adrenaline just pushing you through? Go ahead, Jeff.
2: Uh, uh well, as it. So yeah, mine is more recent than Jimmy's. Obviously, I'm uh, newer to the game, but uh, my first fire—I mean, I was with an instructor. You know, this is like Jimmy was saying, this is on-the-job training. But
3: uh,
2: uh, truth be told, I'm like—I'm <laughs> so amped to get into that fire. I actually ran out to the tanker, and my instructor's like, ah, 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 "Stop! We don't run." It's like, okay, you're you're right, sir. You're right, sir. But you're so jazzed, and you're you're you just. You know, it, it's it's hard to believe, you know, that you're in the situation that you've been working so hard towards, and you're about to go do the one thing that you feel like you were put on the earth to do. You're you're just that excited about it. So, trying to suppress that, um, I definitely wouldn't say uh, fear, except for the fear of of messing up um, or not supporting the guys on the ground, or you know, just you know, exceeding my abilities and just not being able to perform the way that you want to perform. That was the biggest fear. Uh, the rest of it for me was excitement um but uh, you know last year being my very first year um you know you, you don't know what you don't know and luckily last year i was based with uh, actually jimmy was the relief pilot so i got to see jimmy um on one day up at grass valley where i was based in nevada county airport but i was based with another gentleman uh colin who um, is a very experienced tanker pilot um, He's very even keel. And I remember asking, you know, questions at the end of the day, just to get a, a comparison, like, Hey, Colin, how, how bad was that for you? Like, give me a, you know, one, it wasn't that bad 10. It was the worst day ever in a tanker. And, um, I just have to gauge it because I'd come back, just feeling like I just went through a, you know, a washing machine and, uh, you know, and feeling like I was too because amount I was sweating. But, uh, you know, a lot of it I had to base on their experiences and I, Jimmy and I've had these conversations too, where I'm just like, man, that was horrible. Was it that bad for you as well? Um, and like the the fire that Jimmy was speaking of at a Reno, that was the Loyalton fire. And I was on that one as well. And as I'm going under these columns and they're talking about outbuildings, uh, roofs being ripped off by a fire NATO, uh, you go that, I don't think it can get much worse than this. Right guys? Like, this, we're getting to that to that point where we kind of pull the plug and we all go land and just go, that's going to do whatever it wants to do. Um, but with that said, I mean, there are, I mean, and just to be blunt, there are times where you scare yourself because, you know, it's uh, every drop is different. Um, you know, you have the same sequence of events to get yourself prepared for a drop, but uh, there are things where, you know, it gets, really smoky and i remember being um in the orbit looking at another tinker going for a drop and you lose complete sight of them because it's just that bad of visibility and you know they come out the other side and then you're up to bat and you go in for your drop and there's just you know i i last year in particular the smoke was so bad out of hollister um when i was uh i went from grass to hollister uh mid last season and uh, it was just so bad i remember going in for a drop and um Pulling out from that drop and like looking at this white object that was passing underneath me, and it was uh, an actual utility vehicle that was up on a hill. That uh, the the you know everything was gray, uh, gray orange from the hue of the smoke, and it's just you know telling distance and being able to see how far things are if you can see them at all. um, You know things things will creep up on you, and you got to be really perceptive and and very methodical um, in every single drop that you have. So. Um, there are times where you scare yourself and you're like, huh, that, that could have gone a lot worse. Um, luckily we prepare for that. And the instructors that I have flown with at this, uh, you know, doing this job are some of the, not only the best people just as people are, um, but some of the best instructors that I've ever, ever run into. I mean, these guys are so dedicated to their job and they, they, they care so much about it that they're not going to let you go out and hurt yourself. They're when they give you the blessing, um, they, they mean it. And, um, so you feel confident going out and doing it. And as a new guy and I'm, uh, uh, Bo Miller, one of our, um, Tinker pilots who has, I think a year or a season or two on me, um, calls himself a stage five trainee. We have four stages as a trainee. And jokingly, he says, I'm just a stage five trainee, which is exactly what I compare myself to where I, I think of myself. Like I am learning every single day and watching um just in complete reverence to guys like Jimmy guys like Colin um and just you know sitting back and trying to learn as much as I can and uh it's a good feeling it's a good feeling to know that I have these guys who are I consider very close friends now but also just mentors and uh they keep me in check they keep me um safe and uh it's like the ultimate team it's it's uh, and it's a fantastic feeling knowing that I have these guys as references to you yeah. know know how to keep myself safe so
0: what's it like when you're when you're lining up for the drop and uh i don't you fly through blinding smoke to drop uh how close to the ground are you can you feel the heat of every fire can when you are down there and you're seeing that utility vehicle and all you see is orange and gray are you feeling i'm guessing you are like the incredible heat that's coming off at the updrafts the the turbulence kind of talk about uh, lining up to the drop, going through the drop and pulling out and what kind of your emotions and your what you're feeling in that moment?
3: Well, every
2: drop is different. Um, but for every drop, it's kind of a, a reverse engineering process. Uh, you look first and foremost at the exits. Like, how am I going to go do this drop? And worst case scenario, I lose an engine and I can't get rid of the load. I have to be able to go into this drop knowing that I can get out of it. So you look at all your exits first and then you just build that backwards. And um, I'm not sure which one of my instructors coined it, but it's like you just set up bread trails. You know, you set up breadcrumbs and you follow these breadcrumbs into the drop Um, to speak to how high we are. 150 feet at approximately 120, 130 knots is kind of the the format that we use in the S2. um, Whereas the larger tankers are going to be a little bit higher and the seats, single engineer tankers are going to be lower. Um, but to speak to what it's like, I mean, if it's a grass fire, you got great visibility, um, and it's just running through pastures and, uh, there's really nothing ahead of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, you're timing your thumb to the wind and you're trying to, it's it's kind of like golfing. It's like, all right, let's, I'm going to put a little bit of dope on this and see if it lands where I want it to. Um, but, uh, yeah i'll let I'll let Jimmy speak on that too
1: yeah as far as uh like you you don't drop you don't want to be going through a smoke column one you can't see you don't know if there's a cell tower, a tall tree, another aircraft or anything like that in there so uh you want to avoid that and with fire retardant is what it does it slows the progression of the the advancement of the fire so you try and drop just on the outside edge of the fire line and then the fire will burn to it and you know slow it down and people on the ground can extinguish it so um in the best case scenario you know like especially like wind-driven grass fires you're in the clear even in you know most of the time where you drop on the fire line you're in a clear and you have a clear exit there are times where the drift smoke plays a part into it and you just have to you know like just plan your escape route plan on having something bad happen to you as far as uh emergency with the aircraft and be able to get it out safely but if you know and if you watch like movies like always where you know they're when they push the button it's a violent pitch up and they're hitting trees and that's that's you know hollywood stuff if, if you're dropping at 150 feet and um 125 knots if i had a passenger with me they probably wouldn't even know that i did anything they thought i was just you know making a a slow low pass along the trees you can't feel a, a pitch up now if you're if you're going downhill and you're picking up a little speed then you can feel it and and it's just not it's not the proper technique to drop fire retardant it's not good on the airplanes to do that anyways over a long
0: term what's the most dangerous part of this mm-hmm. all for you like i guess what's the most compromised position where if something was to happen this would be the worst time and the worst place
3: Uh,
1: it's, I mean, it's kind of just like an air, any other airplane, you know, an in-flight fire in the aircraft or uh, flight control malfunction. Those are the two things that, um, you know, you better have your stuff together and, you know, do a lot of praying at that point. But uh, we have such great mechanics and the maintenance is phenomenal uh, at DynCorp and through CAL FIRE that, you know, I mean, I don't trust anybody with my life in this industry but those guys come damn close they do a hell of a job and we appreciate everything they do to keep you know you when you do this type work you want to make sure your airplane is tip top
0: absolutely i guess another good question is that we haven't touched on yet is talk a little bit about the fire environment uh who controls it uh i've This is kind of uh, not nearly as cool as what you guys do. But when I flew caravans, we would do freight and we'd also do contract work for uh, Pennsylvania Fire Department or National Park Service, something like that. And we would go circle fires for calls and then they would be able to put up their own TFR in the airplane. And we would circle over this fire until the ground crew came there to put it out. Obviously, it's a much smaller scale than what you guys are doing. But is that very similar? Can you guys put up your own TFRs? Uh, and then once you do put up your TFR, what's the kind of hierarchy of who is attacking it? Or what is the actual mission for each individual aircraft, like helicopter, or the OV-10, the C-130, the S-2? Kind of talk a little bit about that.
1: So when, when you get to a fire, there's an incident commander, and that's always a person on the ground. Usually the first first high ranking official on that fire, and then uh, we come rolling in. And in a perfect world, the o- the guy in the back seat in the OV ten is talking to the incident commander of the fire. And uh, you know the guys on the ground are the in charge of the fire, but they can't see the forest through the trees, literally. So they rely heavily on our perspective, and we can say, "Hey, on the right flank of this fire, you have immediate structure threat." You know they'll say, "Hey, take action." So the, the guy in the OV-10 is basically like a moving aircraft control tower. And, you know, when you watch this on the news, it looks like just a bunch of cowboys just going in there, dropping, zipping on out. But it's uh, very choreographed. Uh, when we come to a prospective fire or an actual fire, you make a 12-mile call, 12 nautical mile call. You make a seven-mile call. And if someone's already an air assets on scene, They have to clear you in, they give you an altimeter setting, they give you an altitude to come at. And uh, the OV-10s are making right turns about, you know, in a perfect world, 2,500 feet above the ground. The S2s come in and the, you know, heavy air tankers come in at 1,500 feet and the copters are 500 feet and below. And once uh, the drop, you know, I mean, it could take, by the time you get to the fire, you could be dropping within a minute, you know, or less. They'll give you the description. You're like, yep, I've got that. Then they'll say, okay, you know, you know tanker 9-3, you're cleared to maneuver. And then it's just like, it's actually um, very similar to a traffic pattern in an airport. You'll call downwind. The air tech say, I've got your downwind. Call base, got your base. You know, tanker 9-3 turn and final. And you have to hear clear to drop. So the, the ATGS has to say tanker 9-3, you're cleared to drop. If they don't, if you lose communication or they don't see it, you have to take it around and you always have to plan your drop to take around a full load safely because there may be uh, firefighters that haven't cleared the line that are on the ground. There could be a civilian on the ground. There could be a helicopter encroaching near your path. You know, there could be anything. So it's uh, it looks cool, but it's very choreographed on how we do things. And, you know, we do it safely. And. And uh, it's called the fire traffic area. And unfortunately, it was started, you know, all that stuff's written in blood by mistakes that have happened in the past. And they're just um, safety measures that we've instilled to uh, mitigate the risk.
0: So is the point of the OV-10 and the helicopter is more of a spotting and uh, kind of uh, eyes on the fire and kind of eyes on the area? Or do they both play, uh, do they they have the ability to extinguish uh, or lay down drops? The OV-10 and the aerial commanders are, are essentially eyes in the sky. The helicopters,
1: they come in. There's different. T- there's heavy helicopters that um, they drop water or fire retardant. Generally, they'll just suck out of a, a reservoir or a, a lake, a lake or a uh, river to extinguish fires. And we have the helicopters. We have they're attack capable, so I believe they have nine firefighters in the back, a pilot and a captain in the front. They'll drop off firefighters to remote parts of the fires. They have their hand tools, water pumps, and they start working the fire from the ground immediately. The helicopter will go as a tank. Now we use we have Hueys. Now we use Blackhawks and and the Blackhawks can take a thousand gallons of water, you know, just sucks it up, drops in the fire and just keeps going back and forth. So they actually have an active role in extinguishing the fire as well.
0: When you get the coordinates, or when you get the the all okay for uh, for you to go make this drop, and you're making your your traffic pattern, is there a, what kind of equipment are you working with? When I flew aerial survey, and I know this is very different, but I don't know if they have firefighting kind of aerial survey equipment where you can type in uh, lat longs, or someone can uplink you a lat long, and you guys know exactly where to fly, and it can can give you a center line, or is it all just kind of sight and see? Like you type into 430 or you, whatever you're using, just the the lat long or where you want to go, and you just kind of aim it and you figure out where the winds are and you fly the best pattern that you can. Go ahead, Jeff.
2: Uh, the, uh, we have these very high tech Garmin GPSs, 530s. I don't think one of them is newer than 25 years old. Um, and that's, that's how we get our, uh, our bearing and distance and our latin long. So they'll, they'll read us a, a latin long and um, we can plug it into our our 530, which gives us that pretty little magenta line that we follow to the fire. And once we get to, and that's how we use, like Jimmy was talking about with the fire traffic area, you make your 12 mile calls, your seven mile calls, as you're going to the fire. And, uh, that's how we're gauging our distance from that fire off that lat long that we were given, um, once we, when we were on the ground before we launched. So that's how we're getting our, our distance. And, uh, once you're over the fire, uh, like Jimmy was saying, you know, OB 10s and right hand turns and the, uh, the S2s are left hand turns. Um. You know, single pilot, left-hand turns. All the all the guys who are going to be doing drops are going to be in left-hand turns, unless you request a right-hand pattern for for terrain or for smoke or for some other reason. Um, But yeah, that the the highest tech piece of equipment we got on that uh, on that tanker or in that tanker is the five thirty, which is what I use. I know a lot of guys use iPads. um, And four flight, four flight is awesome because you can kind of see you know, as you're walking out to the tanker before you even get there, you can kind of just get your uh, situational awareness up by going, okay, that is, you know, right on the edge of the Charlie airspace. Uh, there's antennas there. Oh, and there's, you know, there, whatever icons you're seeing on your, your sectional chart there. Oh, there's, you know, there's, uh, there's jumpers in the area, you know? Um, so it kind of gives you an idea and along with, you know, altitudes too, you can kind of put your finger over the lat long when you dial it into flight and, see okay this well, this shows that it's you know the terrain there's 2500 feet so we can anticipate going in at a certain altitude and just kind of get yourself ready for it but uh i think that's pretty much it we do have the stratus um which i actually haven't uh, used but uh jimmy could probably talk more to that i think you use your stratus on your ipad right jimmy
1: yeah i'm not a really um Great big techie guy, but yeah, I do use it and it gives out traffic and it's nice to check uh weather, especially lately. You know, if if we get a uh like I'm right now sitting in uh Ronerville airport, if there's a fire three miles outside of Reading and I, I could hear on the radio that nobody's flying, it makes me perk up like, okay, well, why isn't the Reading guys and gals not going to that fire? So I just bring up my, you know, my iPhone or iPad and look at it and say, like, Oh it's one mile visibility at the airport. So you could kind of guess like, well, we'll go out and take a look, but there's a good chance that, you know, we may not be able to successfully make it to that fire. So um, yeah, in the last 20 years, I mean, technology, I'm not the biggest tech guy, but it's pretty phenomenal. The the things that um, aid you into making a lot safer uh, aircraft and flying profile.
0: Yeah. Jimmy, I was actually about to ask you, uh, since you've been in this uh, a little bit longer, How have you seen technology really take off or what could you kind of pinpoint as like the best technology that has been invented, maybe not for firefighting, but that has helped you?
1: Well, me being such a really old guy here, uh, you know, the, one of the biggest advancements was, uh, you know, TCAD. I remember when they, they installed those on our planes, probably about 12 years ago, um, you know it becomes frightening how many airplanes are out there, like God, I never didn't realize this state's so busy with g a aircraft or even our own people, but you know you're like, "Oh, there's nothing out there then' like, oh my God, there it is you know so it's uh that's to me that's one of the biggest advancements in technology is is having that, and, and you know when you get around the fire traffic area, especially on a big complex fire like the Dixie fire between helicopters um air attack platforms and tankers. And even some media copters, you can have 15 aircraft circling over a three mile area. We're all at different altitudes. It's all, like I said, choreographed to make it safe. But you look on the TCAT and sometimes you got to mute it because it's going to go crazy because they're used to, you know, you should have an element of safety as far as no airplane should be near you. But in this business, you're, you're near people, not necessarily flying formation, but you could be in close proximity to other aircraft. But that's the... I, just off the cusp, that's probably the best technology that I've seen in the last 20 years.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you said this. It's, it, I can say the equivalent is, I mean, it's much different, obviously, what you guys are doing, what I'm doing, flying commercially. But when you fly in Southern Florida with TCAS, you're like, wow, I don't really want to know how many airplanes are around me right now. This is terrifying. Yeah. It's probably the same thing when it worked you for the first time. Off. You're like,
1: yeah. like this is, yeah.
0: yeah, this is terrifying. <laughs> turn this off. It's like, why do I want to know this? Yeah. Um, what was, you guys don't have to admit this or or say anything. You can say a story you've heard, but what is the most kind of, uh, dangerous or peculiar, peculiar, I can't say that word. What's the most dangerous situation, uh, you guys have found yourself in or kind of been like, Oh crap, I don't ever
3: want to do that again. Go ahead, Jim. Well, I'm thinking too many. I'm trying
1: to just think of one. I mean, You know, I've had a lot more scarier situations before I even got in this business, flying pipeline patrol and super cubs over the Sierra Nevada mountains and and thunderstorms and just stupid stuff. It's like, God, I should have died at like 24 years old. But you know, once once you get into this line of work, your decision making should be uh, much better than it obviously was when you're a youngster. But, um, you know, I mean... The, the best thing that I listen to are a little, I don't have much hair on the top of my head, but there's still some on my neck. And when those little guys stand up, you stop and listen. You're like, okay, someone's trying to tell me that something ain't right here. So you you start reevaluating the situation. And, you know, I mean, we've all had, you know, close calls and stuff like that, but you know, they're very few and far between because we put ourselves in an element of success by our experience and the way we go about our business.
0: That was a very political answer.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. I'm for
2: mayor of Dixon, California next term. <laughs> for me.
0: I love it. That's awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd say for me being new, uh, it's, uh, there's certain airports that, you know, the the hairs on the back of your neck will raise up just because, you know, it's one hundred and five degrees there and your performance is going to be just crap. Um, and one of those is Columbia, which is, you know, uh, northeast of Hollister there. But we're over in Columbia quite a bit. So there's always the, you know, high, hot and heavy. And it's just, you know, it's it's not a whole lot of fun uh, going in and out of the airport on a lot of days, especially when it's really, really hot. So, um situationally it's like okay i need to make sure that you're just you're just completely dialed and um be ready to reject the takeoff you got to be ready to to get rid of the load and in these tankers one of the the biggest benefits of being a tanker is the fact that uh you know something's not right you don't like it you can you can you know literally hit the big red button and and drop ten thousand pounds almost immediately which increases your your airplane um our lead tanker pilot brad likes to say that we fly two different airplanes loaded and unloaded essentially you know so uh, these things are absolute rocket ships when they're unloaded and uh, they can you know they can feel like uh your your dad's old suburban when they are loaded just they just you know there's big trucks so um but uh, yeah columbia is definitely one of those um i actually last year was uh, following jimmy out of chester and just as a one of my oh wow that was a lot closer than I wanted it to be. It was just on a takeoff. I mean, Chester, it's uh, high, hot and heavy again, but, um, had positive rates, sucked the gear up and just got a, a, a pretty good sinker, which I equate to probably just a tailwind. It was really shifty winds that day and the air tanker started to settle again. And there's some trees at the end. They're not very tall, but uh, they sure looked really tall the closer I got to them. And, uh, I, uh, you know, it, I came very close to to pinching off the load just to be just to make sure I could I could clear those trees. Luckily it all worked out. Everything was fine. Um and I will say if the gentleman who was taking pictures at the end of the runway that day and the yellow Jeep who was standing up, uh sorry for the haircut, buddy, uh that that probably looked really cool, that video you got. Um, but that was not intentional.
3: I'll <laughs> so say-
0: don't apologize um, to him. You should be thanking him, or he should be thanking you because you yeah. got some great content. Send
2: me a, I'll you know I'll drop you my email address. Send yeah, me man. a video. I want.
0: To see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Probably got a lot of followers to that bad boy. <laughs> yeah. Um. Are there? I just thinking about this. I'm guessing you guys are very close knit community. Um, like kind of like a community, like a a old school fighter pilots would have where there's probably legends in this industry where there's probably names and and people who have attacked so many fires and had so many successful runs or are just are very legendary. Is that true? Are there like legendary uh, air fighter pilots that just everyone tries to aim to be like, or is it just kind of a very close knit community where everyone just tries to help everyone? Uh, I'd say
3: both. I mean,
1: it's a close knit community. I mean, we appreciate each and every one of us and we have our friends and, you know, I was lucky enough to, you know, start early enough that I've got to fly with some of the legends like Gene Wallstrom from Neptune Aviation. And, and, uh, you know, in, if you, if you were to look up the old school air tanker pilot, there's a picture of a guy named Don Ornbaum. He was a World War II pilot that was one of the forefathers of the industry. And there's a picture of him on a chair, lean back, just giving the middle finger to the camera. And it just, and, and like, that was like, you know, the old grizzled, you know, air tanker pilot that you think of. And I mean, if I think of it, it's just that, that picture never met the guy. He was, you know, he retired just before I got here, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's,
3: he'd probably be one of the legendary guys you think of when you think of people in this industry. What are you, Jeff? Do you have anyone? Uh so the, the legends, I mean, I hear names all the time from guys who've
2: been here longer and, uh, you know, the guys that they revere, luckily for me, I'm close enough in age to people like Jimmy, where you know, I consider the guys I work with now to be the legends of the industry. And I I'm just being so new, I don't really have much to compare it with, but, uh, hearing the stories of, uh, you know, the quote unquote, uh, the, the old guys or the, the old timers, um, you revere them just. You know, just based on the stories that are that are legend and things that they used to do, and um, yeah, I mean, I I, I am lucky enough to say that I that I currently get to fly with the legends because I, I see these guys do things where it's like, ah, one day I'm a, I want to be just like him, you know. So <laughs> it's uh, so I feel blessed in that manner, being able to share this guys with the current legends. But as far as the, the old timers. I I really don't have that that connection, unfortunately. Wish I did.
0: As we go into the future, and obviously uh, drones are playing a part in the future, and drones are becoming crazy capable aircraft of doing many, many types of things. And right now, you guys fly a bunch of older aircraft. The OV-10, I'm guessing parts for that might not be the easiest to come by. And the C-130s and the S-2s are very kind of unique airplanes, more so the S-2 and the ov 10 uh, what do you see the future? Do you see a future of having uh, drones that can drop and do loads and can fly at all times? Uh, do you see other aircraft that might be able to utilize? Or do you think that the, the, the fleet you have right now is set up for the, for the maintenance and for the future and the success?
1: Well, the Grumman S2, I mean, it's an older airplane, but you know, it was designed with a slide ro- rule and it was meant to crash on aircraft carriers every landing, you know, with an arresting hook. So. It's overbuilt and it's strong and it's for Cal Fire, it's it's very difficult to replace that because now you get into some of the uh, larger, you know, air tankers like DC-10s and 747s. They're they're great assets and um, great tools, but, um, you know, they're built with computers. So, you know, I mean, I'm not an engineer, but, you know, they built an airplane to break and then they added 20%. Well, back in the 50s they didn't have that technology. So they just overbuilt the hell out of it to make it a super strong airplane. But, you know, I haven't thought about the drones a whole lot because I think we're a lot, we use drones for like aerial surveying and firefighting and infrared technology. But as far as like um, a drone large enough to, you know, drop a fire retardant, I think we're a long ways from that because I don't think the technology is there yet. We're like, you know, I know like if you do an airdrop or a, missile lock you know in afghanistan or something like that you can have a pinpoint where you need to drop it but actually like where a fire line is and it's constantly moving i don't know if the technology's um there yet like jeff said we have 20 year old gps's so i think we're we're a ways from that but as you see the budget keeps going up because it it takes a lot more effort to fight these fires so i'm sure technology's not too far behind but you know i mean Uh, I think Chuck Yeager years ago said, you know, when they talked about like unmanned fighters and, you know, there's no glory in it and all that. But he said anytime you can, you know, get the job done without killing someone, it's probably a good idea to start looking into it. So I think it's not going to be in my lifetime, but probably in the next 30 years to 40 years, that something like that may start coming
0: to fruition. Do you see, are the S2, the OV-10, is it? They just seem like they're very old aircraft. I don't know much about them, but are there the maintenance? Is it are the parts available? Is it a very easy airplane to maintain? I know they're very well built, like you said, and maybe they don't necessarily build them like that anymore. But I was just wondering about the the reliability, I guess, and uh, the ability to fix them.
1: The reliability is there. Like we'd run into on the S two, we'd run into a shortage of uh, like main wheel tires. They just don't make them anymore. So it, I mean. Before we completely ran out, Cal Fire went out to different vendors, and you know you're not making um, wheels for a, a fleet of seven thirty-seven, so it's very expensive to make a limited run. But I think they they bought one or two hundred um, sets of tires or wheels for the S two, and so we're set. So now we have a vendor that we can make them. So it gets expensive, but you know there's there's few a few parts that do wear out over time that you know, and they may not exist. So you could just manufacture them. And I think it at teeters down in Salinas that, you know, he's building brand new P-51s because there's a market for it. And there's definitely a market for good fire bombers. So I think we'll be able to um, continue using these.
0: That's good. It's good to hear. Uh, we'll kind of wind it down here. Uh, I guess one of my last questions I have for you guys is what's your most memorable uh, fire
3: you've ever flown and why? Go ahead, Jeff. I'm still taking. You know what, guys? I'm actually having technical difficulties. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can hear you.
0: Yeah. Did you hear okay. the last question?
2: Gotcha. Yeah. You, you guys, no, you guys were breaking in and out. What was the last question? Last question
0: is, uh, I was saying that this will kind of wind it down here. But what was, what's the most memorable fires you have ever flown, and why?
2: Uh, most memorable fire? Well, being new. Uh, so last year um at a grass valley we had a fire that was uh seven miles from the airport which is pretty dang close uh called the jones fire and it was memorable because we attacked it really hard and uh we we thought we had ground guys down there we thought we had this thing contained and then it kind of blew up we came back for a fuel cycle and i'm sitting on the wing of my airplane feeling it up and uh they said hey you guys are going back out again i'm like where are we going like back to that fire. And I look over and I look at the, this, this, this header rising up. It's like, Oh, this might be actually a much longer day. So we got up and I ended up doing, uh, 20 is either 24 or 25 drops on this fire. And, um, it was a hellacious day. It was just super windy. Uh, I was re- I mean, just, it was just a really rough day. And at the very end of it was just mentally just broken down. Um, and that was one of those moments where I asked my partner, Colin, like, like, give me a gauge. Like, how bad was that for you? You've been doing this a lot longer. He's like, that's like one of the top five worst days. And it it, it just, you know, it was memorable because it was busy. It's obviously 25 drops in days a lot. Um, but it was kind of just trial by fire, literally, you know,
3: being brand new. And that one, that one sticks in the back of my mind and always will um, for me. Yeah, uh, mine was actually my, my rookie year and uh <clears throat> flying the
1: S2 by myself in 2012 out of Grass Valley. It was a fire in a town called Diamond Springs. It was a small fire that just started, a roadside start, kind of in the middle of town, and it started running up this little drainage. And and uh, you know, I'd been on my own for probably about a month and a half and and you know, listened to the radio. It didn't seem like it was doing a lot, but I still had the airplane pushed up, you know, smoke into the fire. And and then it it kind of turned a corner and went up this little drainage um, right behind this, uh, looked like an apartment complex, but it was a, uh, you know, kind of like a rest home community with um, a lot of elderly people. Some were bedridden and, and uh, it just all of a sudden started heading for this apartment complex. And, and, you know, when everybody's working the same time, it was just like, Oh, uh, uh, Jimmy, you got that? I'm like, yeah, I'm on base. And I was, able to get the airplane slowed up and make a drop. And just as the fire, there was firefighters coming on one side, there were civilians on the other side. And I had about a 30 30 foot wide path to make to shot. And it was like a, you know, I had one chance to do it before it started hitting this apartment complex. And and I did it. And I was just going back like, please dear God, I hope I didn't hurt anybody on the ground, you know, because it was a narrow area. Go back and Turned out, you know, I mean, the fire was already starting to burn part of the building and the retardant just through, you know, skill and just a hell of a lot of luck. It, it got in the right spot. And, you know, there was people on the ground that witnessed it and they called my boss. And it was kind of it was one of those memorable things. I'll probably never ha- hopefully never have a situation like that. But, you know, I just everything worked out right. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was nice to see the success of, you know, your retardant on something like that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, If anyone listening to this right now and they can take away one thing from
3: either what you do or just fires in general, what would you want them to, to take away from this? If you see any fire, you know, out anywhere in the United States, you know, just, you know, for the pilots
1: out there, just stay, you know, try and stay 10 miles away from it even if they're, you know, a lot of fire, most of the fires in California, like 95% of them never have a TFR because they get knocked out within a day before a TFR is established. If you could just stay 10 miles away from it, everybody wants to look at it, but you can look at it on the news and stuff. And it's just, it's really, it creates a very unsafe environment. And, you know, when it used to be a lot of problems with GA airplanes getting close to fires, but now drones, if you have a drone, just keep it at home. Don't go near a fire. It's just, it really disrupts it, and eventually, someone's going to get killed over
0: it. That sounds like a Weather Channel thing. They're going to start saying, like, if you see water, I forget what they're saying is for floods, but yeah, if you see a drone, head home, or if you see a fire. So it sounds yeah. like that's going to be uh, the new call
3: sign on your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> it, it Just maybe. Yeah. What about you, Jeff? Do you have Jeffrey's one? Son. Sorry, guys. It was breaking up again. We, if, if I had one thing
2: to say, what what was it again? Just
0: yeah, if you had one thing, if if someone listening to this, whether they want to be a pilot or pilot, whether just listening or just fires in general, what's one thing you would want someone to take away from this um, podcast and what you could say?
2: Well, it's definitely what, what Jimmy said with the uh, with the drones, especially if if those guys are flying, we can't. If, if you know, and it's only a matter of time before someone uh, you know takes a drone to the windshield or an engine or something like that. So definitely don't fly those, but as far as somebody wanting to get into the, uh, the business, um, it's, uh, you know, as far as avenues and whatnot, I, I, you know, I think you first contacted me through our, our, uh, Instagram page actually. Was that right, Justin? Was it yeah. through, uh, the, okay. So California fire pilots association, which is our handle on Instagram. Um, I'm always answering emails and questions from people who are interested to get into it. And so if you're interested in it, you know, in any facet of it, um, and if I can be a help, you know, feel free to get a hold of me through that. But, um, you know, I, I really don't have any parting words of wisdom, but, uh, <laughs> don't start fires, you know, it is, it, it is definitely, yeah. D- don't start fires. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? that's, that, that, that's a good one. Huh? That, that yeah. sounds PC, but it, it is the, you know, for me, it's the best job in the world. I'm, I'm absolutely blessed beyond belief. Uh, to be here. And, uh, you know, I, I get excited, you know, every time I get to go back to work, which I, I feel blessed in that manner. Cause you know, I don't, I think I'm the minority when it comes to that. A lot of people don't feel that way about what they do for a living. So, um, for me, it's the best job in the world. And if you're interested in getting into it, feel free to reach out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's it.
0: Perfect. Well, Jimmy, Jeff, thank you guys for coming on. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have a ton of questions or people will be hitting me up to get you guys on again to answer specific questions. So uh, hopefully we'll have you back on here soon. Uh, I hope you guys are staying safe and thank you for what you do. I know that you guys are doing good work and uh, it's such a necessity. And like you said, like we talked about earlier, the fires just seem to be getting worse and whether it's mother nature, whether it's people, I don't know what it is, but uh, just thank you for what we some people know what it is but uh thank you for everything that you guys are doing and we really appreciate it and uh stay safe out there
1: it's our privilege we appreciate the opportunity and the kind words
0: yeah anytime and like i said hopefully we'll have you on here soon but uh thank you so much That is a wrap on episode 186 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this podcast. I'd love to have them on again. Uh, Maybe go out and meet them, interview them in person, see the planes, touch the planes, and maybe go flying if I'm allowed to. I don't know, it sounds kind of crazy. But thank you guys for listening. I really do appreciate it. Check out Pilot the Pilot, Pilots Coffee, the best coffee in the game. And I hope everyone's having a great day. And as always, happy flying.